For the next hour, you'll be leaving the show me state and entering the show me the money state. So stop what you're doing, grab a pen, and get ready to learn, people. Because you're tuned to the Ozarks' number one show about your money. Randy Floyd, founder of Floyd Financial Group, will be your guide for straight talk about living the life you deserve in retirement. Prepare to be empowered. Now, here's your show me the money host, Randy Floyd. Thank you so much. Welcome to Show Me the Money with Randy and Jake Floyd, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name's Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions, but the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Randy and Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. First off, Randy, how you doing today? Doing very well, Jeff. How about you? I am doing fantastic. Thank you, Jake. How are you? Just another great day here in the Ozarks, Jeff. That's right. It's always a great day in the Ozarks, and particularly when we're getting together on a Saturday morning to talk about money and finances and all things relevant here to the last bastion of sanity. Well, let's start off, gentlemen, as we do most weeks, and that is talking about the current state of events, or current affairs, I should say, the market and what's going on. We had a little bit of a rally last week, and people were getting encouraged by that, saying, oh boy, is it over yet? Is it over yet? No. Okay. okay. <laughs> next, next question. <laughs> next question. Uh, no, seriously, this is another head fake. This is just uh, what we've been seeing since January, where, you know, in January, the market went down about six, seven percent, then rallied back up before the end of the month to about negative two, and then went down to negative nine, then rallied up to about negative three, and then went back down to like negative 12, and then it went negative 17, then it went negative 22, and then here this last week or, or a week or 10 days ago, we were negative of 24 and change. And now we're rallied back about five or 6% or something like that earlier this week. And so, no, this is just another head fake until the Fed, which is uh, Jerome Powell, until he uh, flinches and says something different about what he's going to do with interest rates. And I don't think that's going to happen as long as employment numbers are good. You know, I, I think we're we're headed for more red ink before we get a lot more green. Speaking of Mr. Powell, I know he's in charge of raising interest rates. Uh, do you see any more on the horizon? Yeah, I think that there's, I mean, the projection is for at least one more 75 basis points mm -hmm. uptick. And then, you know, the jury's still out. And as we, I've been watching a lot of the, the talking heads on uh, TV over the last couple of weeks here. And some are saying, hey, he's gone too far, that he doesn't realize what he's done. And this is taking time to catch up. In other words, the, the interest rate hike hasn't had its effect. There's a lag. And then there's others that say, no, 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 he hasn't done enough yet. He's got to do more. And then there are those that are saying, well, you know, we're not quite sure <laughs> at where is this thing is. And so uh, he'll be speaking here again soon. And, and I think the biggest thing is right now, what is his tone? Is he going to remain hawkish like he has been? You know, or is he going to soften? If he softens, that's going to be interesting. And I'm not sure if that's positive news or not. And we've seen a lot of that here recently where what would normally be good news is bad and what would normally mm -hmm. be bad news is good, you know, in this environment. Really strange. Well, as we said, Jerome Powell is in charge of uh, raising interest rates and he keeps raising them and raising them and raising them. Do you think that his interest rate uh, raising has had much effect on what's going on? And I mean, how far can he go with interest rates? 
Well, if you get underneath the hood, I was listening uh, to some reports on what's going on with manufacturing and things around the globe and in this country. And, of course, we had FedEx a couple of weeks back that they've already noticed that shipments are down globally and that we're probably headed for a global recession. So, yes, we believe that what we're seeing with housing prices and, you know, just things in general, we, th- we think that, yes, the rising interest rates are having an effect on the economy to the negative, which is what he wants. And I think also, Jeff, that... I think I think you could argue that we've already gone past the point of no return as far as interest rates are concerned. Uh, like Randy said, a lot of the indicators that we're looking at to see relief in are very lagging, especially when it comes to like housing. So it right. takes almost a year for home prices to trickle into rent. Mm-hmm. And so one of the biggest things that we're seeing is these huge rent increase in prices and things. Yeah. Everything is in place already for those to start sliding, but we have not actually seen that yet. May not see that till middle of next year. You know, well, if we keep raising rates 75 basis points every six weeks, <laughs> you know, we'll be at seven or eight by that point. So yeah. I think that it has been that, like Randy said, we're going to have one more 75 most likely there's calls for another 75. Hmm. So there's only two meetings left. So if we did that, then we would be at 4.5% on the Fed funds rate. We saw that just the expectation of that, we saw mortgage rates go to 7.1% for a 30-year mortgage. That's paying points and having nearly perfect credit. Yeah, yeah. So those are, those are huge numbers, you know, and people are like, well, you know, back in the 80s, we paid 18%. That's you know? well, right. That's true. But it's a very different world now because you have so many more homeowners mm-hmm. that the market is going to be a lot more fragile and a lot more explosive when it comes to interest rate raises, especially since we had, you know, 14 years or 13 years of very ultra low interest rates. You know, the shock of that moving up is not going to just go away in a puff of smoke. You know, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see what happens. And I would imagine, too, that these high interest rates have had a dramatic effect on those people who are in the mortgage business and those people who want to refinance and even reverse mortgages. Reverse mortgages are affected by these rising interest rates, too, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, everything is. Uh, you know, there's another interesting dynamic at play here. You know, everybody went home to work, right? Right. And so everybody learned to work remotely. And now we're seeing that there's a lot of pressure from companies for people to, gee whiz, Jeff, you know, come back to the office and go to work. But of course, if you ask somebody to come to the office to go to work now, you're a draconian person. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so I'm like, what in the world is this? So, so all of a sudden yeah. now, what we've and we've seen this, we saw people that thought, well, hey, this is the new way of the world, so we're going to work from home forever. Mm-hmm. And so they packed up and moved to another state or halfway mm-hmm. across the country. Right. And now their company says, oh, by the way, Bill, it's time to come back to the office. And they're like, well, uh, gee whiz, that's kind of a problem. Yeah, yeah. two thousand miles from the office now. <laughs> so we don't think we can do that. Now the other thing that's going to happen though. If he gets done what he wants to get done, the jobs market is going to get tight. Mm -hmm. People are going to lose jobs. And then what's going to happen is people are going to have to move. And when they do and they don't have much equity in those homes or when the price goes down, they're going to have zero equity because a lot of them bought with three to five percent down. They're going to walk away from those mortgages. And so Mm. it's going to be an interesting time in the housing business looking forward here. And that's what's going to bring prices back down. But unraveling this whole thing is going to get bloody. And that's why we say it's not quite over yet. Now, I want to end this by saying, hey, we're not totally negative on what's happening here. This is just something that has to happen. This will cycle through. And when it does on the other side of this will be great stuff again. Oh, yeah. 
but we're having yeah. to pay the price for all the money that was printed and the shutting down of the economy for 90 days. You can't just stop the wheels turning and expect that everything will be okay. Yeah, so there is a big financial storm brewing. We're already in a pretty significant storm. We're talking with Randy Jake here, Floyd Financial Group, uh, local guys right down the road, and we're talking about the market and the economy today. Well, I guess there's no doubt, Randy Jake, we are truly in a recession. Is there any argument about that? You know, there's a few holdouts out there that still contend that we're not in a recession, mainly because of the jobs market. So again, we still have this very, very tight labor market, meaning there's way more people needed than willing to fill the positions. And so, you know, until that changes, there's going to be these holdouts saying, well, you know, it's not possible to have a recession when the jobs market is this tight. And I think just because it hasn't happened before doesn't mean that it's not possible. We also have never printed the astronomical sums of money that we printed like we did before. Mm -hmm. We haven't spent 15 years at zero interest interest rates like we have before. So, you know, there's there's a lot of room for conjecture here, I guess, but at the same time, make no mistake, if you are to look at the money supply in this country, meaning the total amount of dollars kind of in circulation and the currency levels, if you take that and you look at it on a chart, it looks like a 45 degree angle upward slope, right? So it's just, you know, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger because we keep printing more money and we increase the money supply. Anytime the money supply is expanding, if you lay the S&P 500 over top of that, it looks identical or pretty close. It's very, very highly correlated, meaning the more money that goes in, the more asset prices go in, right? So if you have $100 and I just give you 30% more money, so now you have $130, are you willing to pay more for the same things for a loaf of bread, let's say? And the answer is yes. By and large, people, if you just simply have more money, it becomes worth more money to you because it's more of a percentage of how much you have that something's worth, not a specific dollar amount. Now, there are a few exceptions to that. So we've had the money supply expanding and expanding and expanding. Well, now it's contracting and we're taking the giant vacuum cleaner out and you know sucking up all this money that we threw out of the helicopters, you know, over the last couple of years and really even the last decade. And so if the market and asset prices in general, real estate go up whenever the money supply is expanding, what would we expect to have happen when we start contracting the money supply? It stands to reason that the opposite would hold true, and it is, and it does. And this is going to continue until Jerome Powell changes his mind here on interest rates and monetary policy. Yeah, so Jeff, another way to think about this is you've been to the ocean, right? And right. so you go to the ocean and you walk out on the beach there, mm -hmm. and the wave washes up, and then you have the undertow or the, when it starts to go back out. Right. And so the thing that you notice is when the waves are small, not much undertow. Right. But when the waves get big, Ooh. there's a lot of undertow. Yeah. And so what's happened is we created a huge wave of money. And now we've stopped that huge wave of money and it's time for it to go back. And there's a lot of undertow here. And that's exactly what we're going to be seeing. And again, for people that have a plan, that had a plan going into this, they're going to be fine. Those that didn't have a, a solid plan going into this, this is really difficult right now. We've been talking to a lot of our clients every day here, 
And, you know, they're beginning to realize that, yes, this is ugly and yes, this is bad and no, we don't like it. But, you know, they can see their way clear after talking to us that they're going to be okay and they're going to make it through this process. And again, having a plan is really something that's important. And we begin with the end in mind. And that is, Mm -hmm. we know there's going to be good times. We know there's going to be bad times. Right now, we're in the middle of some bad times. But on the other side of this, we'll be prepped and ready to go to make some money for our clients. And soon we'll be looking back over our shoulder at this and saying, yeah, that was a little painful, but we came through the storm. It's all good, and we're going to keep on retiring, right? We're just we're just Absolutely. retired. We're going to retire on. <laughs> I like that, Randy, and uh, that was a very good example, too, about the ocean. Well, I think we always come back to the same thing, Randy and Jake, and that is to have a plan, a plan that will help you weather any financial storm. If you don't have a plan, you'd like to get in and talk to Randy and Jake. They're local guys right here in Springfield. Sit down, ask your particular questions to protect yourself in the event that this financial storm becomes another hurricane or a tornado or whatever it happens to be. You can get in and talk to Randy and Jake with no cost and no obligation whatsoever. To get your complimentary plan, call 417-889-7200. 4178897233 you can also request your complimentary no cost no obligation no judgment plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com you're listening to show me the money glad you could join us here this fine saturday morning we'll be right back with more of our show right here on 104.1 fm ksgf where springfield comes to talk ready for a heap and helping of some more real talk thought so here's another serving of show me the money with your server randy floyd welcome back everybody this is randy floyd along with jake and in this segment we're going to be talking about can we invest without the stock market and that is a very good question there randy a lot of people think investing involves buying stocks And I've taken a look at the stock market lately, and I'm not liking what I see so far. I mean, we were talking off the air earlier about a particular home goods store that, boy, we're going to have to get in our car and rush to here pretty soon because it's probably not going to be around much longer. So let's talk about investing. If you are not going to invest in the stock market, can you do that other ways that will have significant results? Well, we have to define what significant results are. <laughs> yeah. It depends so, on you know, your, we, your, your definition. Yeah, okay. So let's start there. Yeah, That's right. So we need to talk about history just a little bit here, I guess. So looking back over our shoulder, back to 1981, when interest rates were really high, and you can get, you can get 12% CDs and stuff like that. And even as late as probably 2004 and five, you could get 4 and 5% money market accounts. And so people mm-hmm. would just put money in there, and that was fairly substantial. You know, because if you had a million bucks on at 5%, you know, that's $50,000 a year of cash flow and you had no risk to your principal. Of course, after that time, we know that interest rates went down to where basically banks were paying less than a half percent on CDs mm-hmm. and 0. 0.10 for, which is one tenth of 1% on money market accounts and savings. And I remember when I was a kid, I used to have a passbook savings account oh, yeah. that I would go there and they'd give you this book, right? Mm-hmm. And you'd, you'd make your deposit, you'd make your entry in there then they'd put your interest payment and stuff in there. And we used to get three and four, you know, 5% on a savings account. I don't know if those days are going to come back or not. If they continue to raise interest rates, they might get back there one of these days. But what we'll do is we'll look at some of the current rates on things out there. And like you said, with the stock market looking as ugly as it is, we have some people that are actually doing this now. They're converting all of their stock, you know, to cash and taking it to a bank. Or Mm -hmm. uh, we can do it inside TD Ameritrade here. We can buy CDs for people inside their account if that's something they want to do. And right now, if we look at uh, savings accounts, if you're looking to get 
get a good rate on a savings account, generally it's not at the bank down the street because mm-hmm. most of the banks are still in this neck of the woods are still at you know a half a percent, one percent, and once in a while they'll have a deal where they'll offer maybe two and a half percent on a one year CD. But savings accounts, if you go to look at online banks like Capital One and Citibank and and some of those, you can get 2.15 to 2.7% on savings accounts as long as you're willing to do it online. Now, there are a lot of people that are not, you know, really very, they don't want to do that. Probably quite a few of the people listening to this show don't love that idea. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they don't don't trust that. And so everybody has their own comfort level, you know. So savings accounts, CDs are something that probably uh, live in the realm of a half percent. If you wanted to go a long-term CD, you might get as much as four percent, something like that out there. The other thing that we have is we have treasury bonds that we can buy mm-hmm. from the government. So right now, the two-year T-bill is probably around four percent. It's maybe a little off that number because we've had a little erosion in the yield here the last little bit on that. But that's something that people can buy, and they can also buy those inside a fund if they want to, and it allows them to get some yield and, again, have some security that those those companies won't go out of business and they'll be able to get some interest and probably in the realm of, like I said, around 4%. Now, if Jerome Powell continues to raise interest rates, those may yet go higher and there may be some opportunity on the other side of that for when interest rates go back down, we might even get some price appreciation on those treasury bonds as well. And if you're willing to go out more than a couple of years, if you're willing to go out three to five years or maybe 10 years, 10 years is probably a little too far because we start to fall off the other end. You know, the the length of a bond increases its sensitivity to what Jerome Powell does on a daily basis here. So we have to be careful, you know, when we go out and we're buying long-term bonds. In fact, long bonds right now probably are just really, probably not a good idea. I don't know, we'd have to see. But again, what people are looking for in these investments is stability. Right. Uh, they have pretty good liquidity there, mm-hmm. and they're just looking for safety is really what it gets down to, and have some yield rather than bleeding and dying on the vine. So <laughs> yeah. those are some of the basic things that we can do. There's also things out there like there's uh, annuity contracts mm-hmm. that you can do. There's an annuity contract out there for five years that pays like 4.5% right now that I have seen. I think that probably if you're looking to do a five-year annuity at 4.5%, you'll be sorry that you did because on the other side of this, we're going to have great gains in the market when the timing is right. And to have your money tied up over there where you're locked into a 4 4.5%, I think is probably not a good idea. I would say also, Randy, that the higher interest rates get the closer we are to the bottom of this market. And so the more attractive those numbers get and the more they're tempting, be careful because we're getting close to that that market ripping mm-hmm. back up. And you know, while 4% sounds good in this environment, it will sound pretty paltry in the face of a you know 35 or 40% rally back. We're talking about investing without the stock market with Randy and Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group. So we talked about high-yield savings accounts and CDs. I mean, they have safety. They don't have a lot of growth. They certainly have liquidity. Bonds, relatively safe here. 4% is the uh, growth rate that you talked on. Those are the yield rate. And then we've talked about annuities, which are safe. They're not terribly liquid, and it is questionable about the growth on those. Uh, What is the interest rate that you're getting, or what do you think the best interest rate you can do right now on annuities is? Again, if you're looking for something that's more like what I would call a CD or a a multi-year guaranteed annuity rate, you can probably get in the four and a half Mm -hmm. to 4.6% range on a five-year. 
The thing that I would say is if you're looking at using an annuity, there's a lot of different setups out there, literally thousands of setups on annuities. Annuities can be a great part of a complete financial plan for a retiree. Mm -hmm. I would say, though, that we want to look at something in the annuity range that's going to give us a lot more upside and not lock us into what you know, a lot of people would say would be a decent return at four or four and a half with your money being safe. But there's places where we can get way north of that and still have the safety. And those are uh, a couple of categories would be a RILA, that's a registered index linked annuity, which a lot of people don't know much about. And then there's also the fixed index annuity, which a lot of people have heard about. And a lot of people have actually experienced, but there's very few of either one of those that we would like to use because number one, whenever we look at using the uh, RILA, we want to make sure that we have good protection for the downside as well as a good upside potential. And the same thing for the FIA. We know that the fixed index annuities can give us complete safety in the downturn of a market, but many of them put a lid on our earnings that are way too low, and some have some additional fees for income riders and things that we really don't care for. We don't feel like we need to spend any extra money because if we set up the account right, if we use the right setup, it'll make the money. And why should we pay somebody to guarantee us an income when we can do that on our own by simply using the correct annuity setup? So we just say this, you know, annuities can be a great part of a retirement portfolio, but you have to be sure you're using the right one and the one that's appropriate for that client. And also the appropriate amount is used in there. It's not a place for all of your money for sure. It's a place for part of your money and part of a plan and building out a complete portfolio. Randy and Jake, does life insurance have uh, any possibilities for investing without the stock market? It does have some credence, I would say. The index universal life is one that'll track an index like the S&P 500 or maybe the NASDAQ and give you gain that way. You do have downside protection there as well in the index universal life. But the thing I would say is as we get a little older and we're in retirement, it's harder to make those things work and really give us a good return because you know, as we get older, we're more mortal, right? You right. know, we know that we're not going to be here forever. And so the cost of insurance inside an insurance contract continues to go up over time and eats into the profitability. Now, I will not say that it's not a good idea for some 60-year-olds. In fact, it could be that at around the 60-year mark, or even maybe as far as 62, and for some of the females, maybe even mm-hmm. as high as 65, it can make sense to use a life insurance contract for a couple of things. Number one, it's a great way to to build in a uh, long-term care alternative. Many of these policies today will allow you to access the majority of your death benefit in the event that you cannot perform two activities of daily living. In other words, where you need some type of care, either at home, assisted living, or maybe finally a nursing home. The other thing that it will do is it'll give, of course, a a tax-free death benefit to the people that you leave behind there. And also, it's it builds cash value if you just need to make a loan or if you want to take income out against your policy value, you're able to do that as well. So yes, a life insurance contract can make sense, but I would just say this, I would encourage people come sit down with us. If that's something you want to know about, we'll walk you through the process and really look at your specific situation to make sure that it is appropriate for you. Investing without the stock market, that's what we're talking about here with Randy Jacob Floyd Financial Group. And finally, with real estate prices dropping as they are, do you think that real estate has any possibility for investing? Yeah, I think that there's a lot of possibility coming for real estate, maybe in a year or 18 months when we really have seen 
you know, the bottom kind of fall out of real estate. And I think it's going to. I think we're going to be able to make some buys. I also think that on the other side of this, that Jerome Powell is going to reduce interest rates again. And so when he does that, mm-hmm. it's going to make real estate very attractive. And for those that have been diligent and waited, you know, for the opportunity, one of the things that, that I think is an incredible opportunity are the VRBOs and Airbnb possibilities yeah. that people can do. There's also, you know, there's other categories out there in real estate, like real estate investment trusts. I will tell you that I am not a huge fan of REITs for short. That's that's REI, Real Estate Investment Trust, REIT, REIT. Used to be they were a pretty good investment. There are a few that have gone public and we've done well with those. But I would say if you're going to invest in a real estate investment trust, I would stay with the public companies rather than going private because the the private ones have a pretty good uphill battle, I think, ahead of them right now. The opportunity may come here shortly where they will be an opportunity again, but I don't think so right now. And I'm going to throw in one final one here and get your comment on that. That's precious metals, gold and silver. Yep. Precious metals, gold and silver. You know, there's a lot of ways to participate in that market. So one is everybody says, well, I want to hold fiscal gold and silver. And that's one way to do it. And that's certainly a viable thing to do. There's other ways where you can actually buy up into a fund. You can also buy up where people store it for you rather than you having to have it. The other thing you can do is you can invest in gold and silver miners stock, which is one of the things that we like to do here rather than actually holding a physical gold and silver. Now, there may be a time in the future coming up here to where gold and silver will be a really good buy. I don't think that right now is the best time to do it, but it just depends on what Jerome Powell does looking forward and really kind of what happens around the globe here over the next probably year to 18 months. And Randy, I had a neighbor ask me about gold and silver. I've quoted you so many times on this. I usually tell them, listen, if I've got food and bullets and you've got gold and silver in the end of times, I think I win there. And also I tell them when I go up to the gas station across the street here, the gas and gov, whatever you want to call it, and I get gas, I really can't shave a sliver off of a Krugerrand and pay for my gasoline. So consider that when you're thinking about holding physical gold and silver. We're talking about investing without the stock market with Randy and Jake here at Floyd Financial Group, just local guys right here in Springfield, Missouri, offering an opportunity for you to get in and sit down and talk about your individual financial situation, whether you're investing for retirement or you're already in retirement. It's never a bad time to have a comprehensive plan. To get your plan at no cost, no obligation, call 417-889-7233, 417-889-7233. You can also request it online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Time for a break, gentlemen. We'll be right back with more of our show when we continue on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready to climb a mountain of financial know-how? Good. Because it's time for more Show Me the Money with your financial Sherpa, Randy Floyd. Welcome back, everybody. This is Randy Floyd along with Jake Floyd. You're listening to Show Me the Money. And in this segment, we're going to talk about examining the 4% rule. Do you even know what that is, Jeff? I do know what the 4% rule is, but I'm not sure that the 4% rule applies anymore. But for those people who do not know what the 4% rule is, Randy, give us a cursory explanation of that. Sure. So the 4% rule 
if you go out and look online and shop around and say, hey, how much income should I take from my retirement portfolio? The 4% rule has been out there for a very long time. And what it basically says is whatever your retirement savings is, add it all up. 4% is about the most you should take per year out of that account. So let's say that you've got a million bucks that you've saved up. And so that would be 4% of a million would be $40,000 a year that you would start to draw off your retirement assets. And then they would say that you could adjust each year for inflation based on starting at 4% and that your money should last about 30 years is what they're saying. Now, obviously, things change and interest rates have an effect on this. Returns from the stock market have an effect on this. How your money is invested in general has a direct effect on this. And I will tell you that in today's world, a properly engineered plan, we think and we know actually from experience here, we can do better than the 4% rule. Now, if you read deeper, there's a lot of people out there that were saying when interest rates were ultra low here back through last March, that three or three and a half percent was the new rule for how much you could start with and then adjust for inflation each year. So some people may differ on the opinion that we have here about the 4% rule. So let's start off with what the 4% rule gets right. Yeah, so what the 4% rule gets right is we start off with a realistic amount of what we can withdraw from our savings. You know, sometimes I have people come in here, they want to withdraw 7, 8, 9% a year. I will tell you that that does not work long term. The challenge we get into is, you know, while we're making great returns in the market, you know, it's fine. You can draw that 7, 8, and 9%. But the problem comes in when we have a downturn like we've had here recently, and you're drawing out 9 or 10%, and the market's down 25. Now you're down 35. And when the market rallies back, you don't get all that gain, not to mention the fact that now that it's down 25%, rather than spending 8 or 9, you're spending 10 or 11 or 12% of your portfolio a year. And it's very, very hard to ever recover from that. So setting it up with the right expectation in the beginning and not overspending is the thing that the 4% rule does get right. Well, that rule also, I think, uh, makes a lot of assumptions. Let's talk about what the 4% rule gets wrong. Yeah. So basically, the 4% rule assumes that we're going to be in really, I think, just, you know, a minimal gain environment. And here's what we know about the stock market. When the market moves, it generally moves greater than 10% either direction. Now you have the anomalies out there, but if you were to look at it back over the last, you know, 50 to 52 years from 1970 looking forward, just most of the time when the market moves, it's going to move greater than 10 percentage points up or down. And then we have those really catastrophic years where it moves down 38% or 40% over a couple of years or 50% over 18 months where it's down, down, down. And that is very devastating to a portfolio. So one of the things I would tell people is, you know, again, if you have a financial plan that works, you know, one of the things that we build into our plans here is we plan for catastrophic events. We plan for those worst things to happen. And when they do, we know that on the other side of it, our clients, because we protected a substantial amount of their money on the way down, 
they're going to be able to rally back and recover. Now, not at 8 and 9% withdrawal. Again, we need to probably live in the 4 and 5% withdrawal range to make those things happen. But again, the 4% rule probably is a little bit too tight unless you're really looking to long-term build wealth. With a properly structured plan at 4%, I mean, you can build wealth and spend your 4% each year. And I'm going to tell you that we generally have been able to do it at 5% and still grow people's portfolios over the long haul. So the 4% rule really sounds like a rule of thumb, but I would imagine that that varies according to the individual. Do you generally stay 3 4 5% with your plans? Or do you go higher? Do some people go lower? Uh, all of the above okay. <laughs> is really kind of yeah. how that works out. And so, you know, one of the things that we do when we sit down with people during uh, the first phase of our talk with them, discovery, part of our five-step plan is just to learn exactly, you know, where they are now, what kind of income they're used to. Have they recently paid off any debt? Like they have, have they finished paying off their house? Have they paid off their cards? Have they paid off student loans, either theirs or their children? Are they through college? All those sorts of things. And once we kind of know what the lay of the land is there, now we're going to say, okay, what is your budget? Not that we're trying to put a clamp on people. We just need to know what is it that you want to do in retirement? How much is that going to cost? And what does your budget look like? Once we know what the budget looks like and we can look at Social Security, if they're lucky enough to be one of those 15 or 16 percenters that have a pension plan, we're going to look at the pension plan. We're going to look at the money they've saved in their 401k or 403b or 457 or TSP, whatever it is, uh, or the Roth IRA. We're going to look at all that and then figure out what their income is in that 4 or 5% rule. And then we're going to see if those two things match up. Because if they don't, well, you know, there's trouble brewing in paradise. So right. we have to figure out how to make all those things meet. And that's part of that initial plan during the discovery phase. So the 4% rule is really just a starting point, Randy and Jake. I would imagine that a very big factor in determining how much you can withdraw in your retirement account is how long you're going to live. I mean, if you live to be 105 years old, does the 4% rule still apply? And if you have a short lifespan, you're going to live another 10 years. I would imagine you could take more. So how does longevity figure into this? So here's what we always think about, Jeff. So, I mean, when people come in to sit down with us, once in a while, we'll have somebody that'll come in that is really ill and is terminal. Then, you know, what we're really looking for is how do we distribute the wealth to their beneficiaries? But for people that are coming in to retire, I'm always going to assume that they're going to live to 95, at least 90 because, you know, when do you want to wake up and have no money? I well, mean, we're just, <laughs> we, we, we can't go there. Mm-hmm. And then also, most times people have an idea that they want to have how much they want to leave to their beneficiaries. So when we sit down and we're talking with them and say, okay, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how important is it that you leave an inheritance to your children? And by asking that question, you know, some people say, well, you know, I want my last check to bounce. Mm-hmm. So they, they don't want to leave much. Other people say, you know, I, it's a 10. It's the most important thing to me that I'll scrimp and save and do without to leave my child a million bucks. And then there's people all up and down the scale mm-hmm. in there. And, it, and, and there's no right or wrong answer to that. It just is, you know, what do they want to do? So by looking at that and applying the 4% rule or the 5% rule that I would call it here at Floyd Financial Group, depending on what they're wanting to do, we will set up the income stream accordingly to try to match that. And again, I, I don't really want to try to figure out how long people are going to live. I want to make sure we're going to cover the bases most of the time. And by looking at 90 or 95, we're generally, uh, we're generally okay. 
Do you stick with the 4% rule for the entire life of the investment? What I mean by that is can the 4% rule change to 2% or 3 or maybe 5 or 6% on down the road? I mean, do you have to stick with 4%? The answer is if you, all your money is sitting in the stock market, it needs to change. Yeah. But if you have the proper plan set up, we can stick with that 4%. Now, one of the things people ask is, well, let's say, for example, we have a million dollars and we want to start at 4%. That's 40000 a year. Well, what happens if we have a great year or two in the stock market and now we reassess and now we have you know, $1.3 million, let's say? Do I get a 30% raise to get to that 4%? And the answer is it kind of depends on the person and, and their goals and that kind of thing. But yes, there's a lot of cases where we will be able to give a raise uh, in a good environment. Uh, we just have to make sure that we're, uh, that we're prudent and watching it. But yeah, we like to set up income plans that are dynamic, meaning they can change as the situation changes if we want them to. But most people don't ever want to have to take a pay cut. You know, they don't want to be like, well, the market's not doing so well. Let's back off of income. Now, while that might be the best thing to do for the portfolio, I'm not going to expect my client to want to take a pay cut. So the way we set up all the plans is so that we will never have to do that. And so taking the appropriate amount of risk, the appropriate amount of income for the individual couple or you know the, the needs of that person is what's so critical. And that's where all the planning process comes into play. We're talking about the 4% rule with Randy Jacob Floyd Financial Group. Is the 4% rule right for you? Well, to find out, get in and sit down with Randy and Jake. Get your complimentary, no cost, no obligation, no judgment financial plan. It's very easy to get started. Call 417-889-7233 to sit down with Randy and Jake. They'll find out all about you. You'll find out about them and you'll get a plan started. 417-889-7233. You can also request it online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Again, it's not going to cost you one thin dime. FloydFinancialGroup.com. Happy Saturday morning. Glad you decided to include us in your weekend activities. We're going to take a quick break here on Show Me the Money. We'll be right back for the final portion of our show after this here on 104.1 KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. People of the Ozarks, step away from the fishing pole and prepare to be shown the money because we're back with more Straight Talk with Randy Floyd. Welcome back, everybody. This is Randy Floyd. You're listening to Show Me the Money. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about what's one of the biggest things that can derail retirement. And Randy, I would think that it's health care costs. I mean, most people do not account, I think, sufficiently for health care costs. So we want to talk about that and in particular, long term care in this segment. Now, I mentioned uh, off the air that most people do not die coming back from the mailbox. I mean, usually it's a lot slower decline than that. What is the likelihood these days that someone is going to need some sort of long-term care? Yeah, about 70% according to the government. So about 7 of 10 will need some type of long-term care before we leave the planet. So it's something we need to address, and we always talk about it a little bit during our planning process. And everybody has a little bit different take on that, you know. We have people that have experienced it firsthand with their parents, and so they're like, okay, yeah, we know all how real that was. And then we have some people that, you know, their parents died quickly. They didn't Mm -hmm. uh, need long-term care, and so they have a little different take on it and say, well, you know, mom and dad didn't need to go but for like two weeks, and then, you know, Mm -hmm. they, they passed away there, you know. But here's what I know about being in this business for a very long time. We've been doing long-term care planning in a very big way since 2006. 
So we're 16 years in of seeing what could happen. In fact, for many years, I did a workshop where we help people to kind of understand and navigate this called Four Ways to Pay. And basically, the four ways to pay for long-term care are these, out of the hip pocket, Mm -hmm. some type of veterans assistance if you're a veteran, some type of long-term care insurance, and then finally, Medicaid at the end is the way that that works out. Now, let's talk about a couple of things here. Medicare and Medicaid are two different animals, right? Right. So a lot of people think that Medicare will take care of their long-term care needs. Now, there's a lot of different plans out there. I will just, I'm going to speak in generalities here. So for the most part, most plans on Medicare, they're going to pay for rehabilitative therapy in a nursing home which basically means they're going to pay for up to 20 days, provided you've been in the hospital three midnights prior to your admission Mm -hmm. for rehab. And after that, they're going to pay about $180 a day copayment for every day after that is what the client's going to pay. The first 20 days are going to be included with the plan. There is one supplement, the Plan G is in George supplement, that Mm -hmm. will pay, if everything falls right, up to 100 days without the copayment of $181 a day. Now, That plan, again, is something you have to pay premium for to have, and you have to actually select that plan. But after that, let me just say this, after 100 days, the best it can be, after that 100 days, you are on your own now to figure out how to pay. So the first way is to come out of of your hip pocket with, depending on where you are, in some of the rural areas, we're still in the $5,500 a month range, which is still $65,000 a year, to as much as $7,000 here in town. And if you live uh, you know, on the coast and things like that, the numbers get really expensive. But here in the last bastion of sanity, I would say that we can probably say that it's between $6,000 and $6,500 a month. Now, I don't know about you, Jeff, but most people are just not equipped to come up with another $6,500 a month. I mean, that's just a lot of money. Yeah. And uh, you're talking $75,000, $80,000 a year, and they just aren't equipped to do it. And the good news is you don't have to, okay? So there's other ways to do this. But if you don't plan, I mean, that's kind of where you're going to be is, is stuck, you know, paying that bill that way. Now, if there's veterans listening to this today, there is a veterans benefit out there called aid and attendance. Mm-hmm. And aid and attendance will help when you have activities of daily living that you cannot perform and you have the right amount of assets or you have assets structured properly to qualify. I want to be clear that it's a veteran's benefit and what it does is it pays for home health care, assisted living, or finally nursing home when you need the aid and attendance of another. And there's a form that you have to fill out for the VA, take it to the doctor, and, and they have to sign off on it because you have to qualify for this medically. And then also you have to qualify for it asset-wise. But I And I won't get into much more detail than that, but I mm-hmm. will say it will reimburse. It's not a pension. It's not something they just start paying you. They will reimburse your cost of care for a married veteran up to around $2,500 a month, for a single veteran around $1,800 a month, and for the spouse of a, a widower, a widower, that spouse can get right up to around $1,300 per month of reimbursement for care that they are getting. So it's a very good, viable tool to help people with assisted living, help keep people at home longer, and then ultimately they can pay for you know the nursing home if they need to. I might add also that for veterans that served you know active duty, they also have the veterans' homes around the state of Missouri here mm-hmm. that they can get access to. There's a waiting list many times there 
but there are veterans' homes around. And again, they are very cost-effective as to what people need to be able to stay there. Randy, you mentioned long-term care insurance. Is that a viable option for people? So long-term care insurance is a very, how would I say, it's a very convoluted discussion, but I'm going to okay. boil it down here a little <laughs> okay. bit. So there's there's basically, used to be the way you would buy long-term care insurance is you would say, okay, we think in, in today's numbers, let's, we say it's going to be $200 a day for us to be in long-term care. So that's about 6000 a month. So we want to go ahead and we want to go out there and we want to buy $200 a day of long-term care insurance. And then we say, well, how many years do we want it to pay? We say, well, we want it to pay for five years. So if we got $200 a day, 6000 a month, 72000 a year for five years, it's a $360,000 policy, right? Mm-hmm. And so basically, we go out and we say, okay, that's what we want. And then, oh, by the way, since the cost of care will probably go up, we might want to put an inflation fighter on there, maybe a 3% or a 5% or maybe a 5% simple compound so that we can keep pace with inflation so that when we need it in 10 or 15 or 20 years. So, you know, when we need it then, maybe it'll cover the cost still, right? So the problem with that is people tend to keep that kind of insurance. And so the, the rates continue to go up until they can't keep it anymore. And then they drop it and they never get that money back. Now, any money they've paid in, they can get back even if they drop the policy, if they become ill. So let's say that you had this policy for the 360000 you paid on it for five years, and you said, you know what, I just can't afford this anymore. Whatever you've paid in, let's say you've paid in $20,000 in premium, whatever you've paid in will be sitting there ready to be paid out to you if you need long-term care, but, but that's it. You're only going to get what you've paid out there. Again, along the way, the reason people drop this is because these premiums tend to go up, 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 and the primary driver of driving that premium up is the fact that the insurance company's on the hook for more money every year that you live. And it kind of makes sense if you think about it. So what we hate about this is it's a moving target and people can't feel comfortable buying it these days. It's very difficult for them to buy it and say, well, you know, uh, that thing's going to get inflated, inflated, inflated. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I may not get my money back. And they really don't like that scenario. So that's the old traditional long-term care insurance. So you have to buy it before you need it. Mm-hmm. People say, well, I don't need it right now. Well, that's right. It's kind of like car insurance. Right. If you wreck your car, you can't buy it, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so if you end up in the nursing home, you can't buy it. Okay. So there's other options out there besides that. We're talking about paying for long-term care with Randy and Jacob Floyd Financial Group. Randy, a lot of people are concerned that they'll lose the family farm to the nursing home. Can you prevent that? Absolutely, we can. So number one, we talked about paying from the hip pocket. Number two, the Veterans Administration, and we might get some help there. Number three, we talked really about basic long-term care insurance. I will say, as we alluded to earlier in the program, there are long-term care insurance policies built around life insurance and annuity contracts that make more sense because they don't change. So that's something just to kind of file away. If people want to talk about that, they should just give us a call. But finally, we're going to talk about Medicaid. And so people worry, you know, about, like you said, Jeff, losing a family farm. Maybe it's a century farm, or maybe they have rental property all around town, stuff that they've had for years. They worry about losing all that to the nursing home and having to, you know, maybe sell it to spend down to pay for it, or that there would be a lien against that because 
if you ever go on Medicaid, the state of Missouri looks at paying your claim as a loan, and what they look to do when you pass away is attach a TEFRA lien to your property. And basically that way, if the property's ever sold, they know they're first in line to get their money. Now, we don't have to go down that road. If we set up a plan properly, there's ways to protect the farm. There's ways to protect the rental property. There's a few things that are exempt when we go to qualify for Medicaid the first time. If people are in a nursing home and they have their just their personal residence, that's exempt as long as somebody can live there. You also can both have a car, even if you can't drive them, as long as you're alive and breathing. And you can have up to $25,000 basically in cash in an account that can stay with the community spouse, the person at home that hasn't gone to the nursing home. Other than that, there's planning techniques that we can do where we can protect assets. I mean, we can protect generally all the assets, especially if it's cash money, it's easy for us to move that money around and set it up in a way. We don't hide anything from Medicaid. We don't do anything underhanded. We do everything according to the rules. But there are ways to protect your assets against losing them and the cost of long-term care. And I would encourage people to give us a call if it's something they want to know about and understand. And here's one thing I will leave you with, Jeff. I know we're running kind of short on time here, is this. We can always make it better. There is no exception to the point to where we can't make it better for people financially if they come and see us and talk to us about how to protect assets against the cost of long-term care. If you have questions about long-term care and how it applies to you and you want a plan that accounts for long-term care, once again, get in touch with Randy and Jake at Floyd Financial Group, 417-889-7233 or online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Gentlemen, out of time for this week. I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank the fine people here at the Last Bastion of Sanity, Springfield, Missouri, for including us in their weekend. For Randy and Jake, I'm Jeff Shade. Get out. Have a great weekend. This great part of the country that we live in. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Show Me the Money right here on 104.1 KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk.